urgency of in the in the in the weight that this passage has, and all the book felt it necessary to focus on it in three specific weeks here. And uh, Paul has has built everything in the book of First Corinthians really up to First Corinthians thirteen. It's it's there for a reason. It's there because of a specific context here. And so, um, in verses one through. Three, he's made it very clear that everything we do, if love is not behind it, if the heart is not behind it in love, if the attitude is not uh, correct behind it, even the very good gifts that God has given, it's pointless. It's nothing. And then last week we saw, if that was the priority of love, then last week we saw in verses 4 through 7, the practice of love, what it really looks like. And that it's not this... this um, this nebulous, ethereal uh, idea out there, but it's very specific and it is designed to operate, yes, in a fallen, broken world, sinful world, where that love is not reciprocated. And then today we're going to see in verses 10 through 13, he's going to drill it home again and tell us why love is the supreme thing. I'm told that when Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart was a young man, living with his father Leopold, who um, I, I understand was himself a very good musician in Vienna. He said to play a trick on his father from time to time. Um, Mozart was a kind of a party animal, not a very moral person. Um, and he would spend a, a night partying with his friends and his father. He would come home, his father would already be asleep in bed. And Wolfgang would go to the piano and he would play very loudly a rising scale of notes, a piece that would increase, and he, he would start slow and get louder and louder and until they reached the resolution at the top of his musical scale, and then he would stop one note short and then go to bed. And his Okay, so we have some musicians in here who sense the the lack of resolution there. So old Leopold uh, would toss and he would turn in bed and he would hear that subconsciously in his mind as he's sleeping here, come into his dreams and his imagination and that frustration of those musicians who need that resolution, right? Of His musical senses had been aroused in this way here as he's sleeping and it would become just build up too much in his heart and he would, he would come stumbling down the stairs, drag himself out of bed and he would play the last note and then go back to bed. <laughs> And in 1 Corinthians 13, this last note here, verses 8 through 13, Paul has described the call of love. He has laid out the life of love in verses 4 through 7. And he is showing us that love is, in this life, is like an unfinished scale, but one day that last note will be played, but that last note will ring throughout eternity in the God's future. And the music of God's love, Calvary love, will be fulfilled, but it will continue as well. It is our destiny, it is why we are saved, it is for our joy. And what Paul wants us to understand is that in the Christian life, everything we do must be judged in light of eternity. And with that test, Calvary love absolutely passes the test of eternity because it is something that will last and go on in contrast to the, even the gifts that Paul has described in chapter 12. And maybe you're wondering in the back of your mind, why is love supreme? 
I mean, even the world recognizes the importance of love, though to try to define it in their own terms. But why is love so supreme? Why is God's love so important? Well, let let me remind you that love has always existed. It has always existed. Love existed before the creation of the world. Jesus said in John chapter 17 and verse 24, there the night before Jesus expresses His love in the fullest way on the cross of Calvary, Jesus says this, Father, I will that they also, whom You have given Me, be with Me where I am, that they may behold My glory which You have given Me, for You loved Me before the foundation of the world. Love is eternal as has existed between God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit for all eternity before creation. It's not something that humans dreamed up. It's part of God's nature. We know that uh, uh, 1 John tells us that God is love. Never says God is faith. Never says God is hope. But God is love. It's His very nature. And so love is supreme because it has existed before creation. It's part of who God is. And then we're also reminded in Scripture uh, that even all the Old Testament, the commandments that God gave Israel, the design for Israel, was so that they would first of all love God with all their hearts, soul, and mind and strength. And then also to love their neighbor as themselves. And you see this even in the Ten Commandments, don't you? The first few tell us how to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind. And then the next that follow tell us how to love your neighbor as you ought to. It's our purpose. That's why love is supreme. Not only exists before creation, it's our purpose. And then Paul tells us that in the Gospel, when we came to Christ, that God's love was poured into our hearts. Why was it poured into our hearts? Well, certainly it was poured into our hearts and for us to understand the reality of the truth that God loves us, but also so that we would act as a reservoir of God's love. Go to Romans Chapter 5. And verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about the Gospel. We're justified, declared righteous. By whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation works patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope makes not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad into our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given to us. God has poured His love through His Spirit when He saved you. He has poured His Calvary love into your heart to love God and to share with the world. And we're also told... That because of that, because God has done this at our salvation, He has shed God's love into our hearts. That 1 John chapter 4, 7 through 11 will tell us that it is a distinct mark of God's love in us. And we saw this in in John chapter 13 as well, that God gives the world the right to, uh, whether whether their their assessment is correct or incorrect, but uh, their own judgment to say, that's Jesus' disciples because they love one another. 1 John 4 says, Let us love one another, for love is of God. It is rooted, it is sourced in God, and everyone who loveth is born of God and knoweth God. And then he says this very strong statement, He who does not love does not know God. 
For God is love. And he he displays that by saying, in this the love of God was manifested, it was made plain, it was clear to us, and that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. And in this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And Paul or John says all that to come to this succinct statement, Beloved, if God loved us in such a way, we also ought to love one another. And so it was rooted in eternity. It's our purpose to love God and our neighbor. Romans 5 says that our salvation, God has poured love in our hearts, and we just saw that it's a sign of God's love, it's a sign of the Spirit's working in us, it's a sign of grace in us. And then, love is supreme because it will continue into eternity. Heaven will not be absent of love. That wouldn't be heaven, wouldn't it? Heaven will be a world of love. Heaven will be a world of love, and that is what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It will continue into eternity. That's why it is supreme. Because Paul sees all of life within this framework of God's future. God's promises that have, that have burst into the present in the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth who came in the incarnation, who came as we celebrate Christmas, who came, God in the flesh has come and He has dwelt among us. But why did He dwell among us? Well, to live the life that you and I desperately didn't live, right? And then to give His life as a ransom. But then to rise victorious from the grave and God's resurrection power has burst into the scene. We see a snapshot of what, of what, of what the new creation will be in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That has marked Jesus out as God's Messiah, the world's one true Lord. And Paul has this future orientation here that he says, look toward the future. Look, look, look at the trajectory of love. That in love, it's not going to be like a bullet affected by gravity that will one day just hit the ground. But in love, your love on this earth will actually soar to a greater height than you can even imagine. In eternity, love will increase and reach its fulfillment. And so he wants us to look with eyes of faith at what, has, what God has made known in Jesus and, and trust Jesus in, our, in, in faith and hope but looks ahead to God what He'll do in the future and to practice out of that love, particularly among the brethren, among the church of Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying is this, when he says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, verse 31, that this is... The way of Christ. He says, Yet show I to you a more excellent way. That love is the way of life of Jesus' disciples in this, as, as, as new creatures. And we better get it. We better learn it here and now, Paul says. Because the more progress we make, the better we're going to represent heaven and the more we're going to understand the true nature of what we'll enjoy in eternity. So what I want us to see in verses 8-10 through 10 this morning is that love is the measure. Love is the measure because gifts will pass away. Look what he says in verse 8. 
Charity never fails. It won't fall. It won't drop off. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but that when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. Paul lists out three gifts. Not because these are the only gifts that will cease. If you look in chapter 12, you'll probably see some that that uh, uh, um, uh, have, have been uh, more and more muted uh, here over the years here. But not because these are the only gifts that will cease, but rather they re- represent uh, the, the, the favorite gifts of the Corinthians and then also the one that Paul says, the one that everybody should covet and earnestly desire, the gift of prophecy here in relation to the context here. And he says, starts off here in verse 8, he says, prophecies, they shall fail. And if you... Maybe you're wondering, well, what does he mean by that? Well, think about it like this. In prophecy, who will need that in the world to come? Tongues. Why would we need to speak them in the world where everyone understands everything at once, right? Special knowledge. We'll all know everything we can know and need to know, and we'll, I believe we'll grow in learning, but we'll, we, won't have the, we won't have the gaps and the capability, uh, our capabilities will be different as well. There's things that belong to the country we live in, at, we live in but will not be there one day. So he says, where there's prophecies, they will cease. And Paul is drawing a, a distinct line between the old country and the one, the new country we're looking for. Our residential status here in this world and the status here of the new creation. Paul is referring to things that cease or they pass away or are put behind in verse 11. And that word that he uses there, that Greek word that he uses, many times is, has, has, has this idea of the future. Has the future. In fact, Look, uh, 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 in relation to the age to come. Look what he says here using uh, uh, forms of this word in chapter 1 and verse 28. Paul says, "...and base things of the world and things which are despised as God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to nothing things that are." He's talking about how God uses foolish things to confound the wise. And that one day in the future, the tables will be turned. He says in chapter 2 and verse 6, he says, However, we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world, that comes to nothing. That phrase, comes, that comes to nothing, is that root word again. Comes to nothing. It, it, it won't last, but there is something that will last. Again, is what he's bringing up. Chapter 6 and verse 13. <clears throat> Paul says, Meats for the belly and the belly for meats, but God shall destroy both it and them. Or destroy there again. The idea. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. So he says there's some things that are temporal and they're not going to last. And, 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 and there's some things that are going to be eternal. In chapter 13, verse 8, and verse 10, of course, that comes up. But also look in chapter 15, the great resurrection chapter, and verse 24, where Paul says this, Then comes the end when he shall deliver up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. There's again this idea of a termination of things in this world, and then a future, a future of eternal things. And then verse 26, 
The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. So when he talks about uh, uh, things ending here, that's the idea here is that in this world things will end and in the future there will be something that is that, that the spiritual things will continue here. So the gift of prophecy. Paul is saying here, when this world is melted and done away with, the gift of prophecy will not survive that transition. None of these gifts will survive the transition into the new creation. But love will. But love will. You see that verb that's used in chapter 13 and verse 8, charity never fails. Whether they be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether it be tongues, they shall cease. Whether they be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy part, but then that which is perfect is come. Then that which is in part shall be done away with. That 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 word, that verb there, shall be done away with is is is, is has a passive sense. And it's and it and it's and it's this idea that there's coming a day of the Lord. Old Testament talks about this, New Testament talks about this. When boom, things are done. Things are done. There is coming a last judgment. And how can preachers or prophets have anything to say when the last judgment reveals Everything. When Jesus returns and every eye who looks upon Him who they pierced is, sees who Jesus is. And, and there is coming a day that will evaluate and pronounce judgment upon everything. And when this gift of prophecy was exercised here in the Corinthian church, it provided with a limited, certainly remarkable, but a limited understanding. An ability to communicate God's will for the community. Why will we need that in eternity, right? Why will we need that in eternity when we'll have a, a full understanding of God's will and perfect communication and communion with God in His presence? And then he, then he says, not only prophecy will be gone, but he says, whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Tongues. This spiritual gift that they were so caught up in in chapter 12 and chapter 14, that spiritual gift, it's got to be discarded. It's going to be discarded. Because the perfect will come. The complete will come. And then he says, whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. Knowledge. The gift of knowledge. The gift that Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 they had a lot of the gift of knowledge. And how true will that be in eternity? That that gift that will be replaced by complete, perfect knowledge. And what's he talking about? When will this happen? Well, he says we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. There's a point in time where it served its purpose, but it did not in full maturity. For now we see through a glass darkly. We look in a mirror and we can see certain things, but we don't see perfectly. But then... There will be a day when we will see face to face. Now I know in part. 
But then shall I know, even as also I am known. See, the problem with the Corinthians was they were supposed to be working in the building of a house. And they were playing around with the tools. They're supposed to be building up each other, building God's temple. And here they were messing around with and tinkering with their gifts for their own selfish purposes. And what God is saying to the Corinthians is, you missed it. You missed the point of your gifts. Because the thing that is supposed to rise out of your gifts is the sun, the beauty, the light of God's love. And you missed it. Didn't really have a nice sunrise this morning, but maybe you can think back to the last sunrise you saw. Perhaps some of you were, 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 were watching the sun come up and you were able to be early enough to where you saw still the, the, the last few stars in the sky. And then as the sun comes up and the sky gets brighter, you see fewer and fewer of those stars. When the sun rises, you don't need the stars anymore, right? The sun rises, the lights go out, and what Paul is saying is, let the sun of God's love rise, and don't build your life on these things. Use them for God's glory. So, love is the measure because gifts will pass away. All gifts will pass away. Not just the ones he listed here, but all gifts will pass away, won't they? Healings? Can you need that in heaven? But then in verse 11 and 12, he gives us two illustrations. He wants us to understand that love is the measure because it is everything that God is progressing us to be. Have you ever thought about what's the destiny of my salvation? Why has God saved me? What's the goal of God's saving you from sin to righteousness? In other words, when it's all said and done, what is God moving you toward? And Paul answered that in our passage here today, which, which means that this is a foundational truth in the Bible because it tells us why He saved us. It tells us why we're to be disciples of Jesus Christ. But honestly, uh, it's one that tragically is often paid lip service, isn't it? But very little obedience. And so he draws this this poetry, this chapter to its close, and he uses some pictures that talk about this transition here from the old world to the new world, from the present to the future, a future orientation to faith, and these affect our here and now. And he says it is all the more important to make love the center of our lives here and now because he says this in verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. And that's understandable. You expect a child to be a child, right? You expect a certain age to be a certain age. But he's looking ahead to a, 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 a point of maturity when we grow into the full stature of the wisdom of Christ. And we are to be growing in the full stature of the wisdom of Christ now, aren't we? And grow in maturity. But there will be a day in heaven when we look back and say, wow, and my spirituality was, I was a babe. Because in heaven we'll be fully like Jesus. You see, the Bible teaches something called progressive sanctification that says we are progressively becoming more and more like Jesus. Little by little, degree by degree. Let me show you a couple places where you can see that. In the next book, Second Corinthians 3, 
verse 18, Paul talks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and how different that was than the ministry of, of Old Testament Israel under the law with Moses. And he says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, But we all with open face, or the face that has been opened up to see, are beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord as we look into His Word. He's, Paul is talking about we're changed into the same image from what? Instantly? From glory to glory. And the idea is degree by degree. Glory to glory. As we look in the Word and we, and we understand who God is and we see His glory. And as Paul was saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we see the knowledge of the glory in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6. We're changed into who Jesus is. That's why God saves us. That's why Jesus said at the end of His, uh, before He ascended, is to teach them to obey everything I commanded them. Why? Why? Why does He want us to obey everything He commanded us? So that we're like Jesus. Become more like Jesus. We obey out of His grace and become like Him. And so, and so uh, this, is, this is the idea for each of us as we made professions of faith. We say, I'm a follower of Jesus and I give my life to Jesus and I, and I accepted his, his, his work on the cross. I received Jesus. We're to become more and more like Jesus. Which means that that affects our horizontal relationships profoundly, doesn't it? That I don't now uh, uh, react, I respond biblically. That when this happens to me or somebody treats me this way, that I don't do this, I renew my mind. I put off the old man and I respond the way Jesus Christ has told me to respond. And so the first picture here is a child growing to maturity. And Paul says, when I grew up, I stopped behaving like a child. And Paul is saying that these gifts will be all of, as important as they are. First Corinthians 12 talks about the importance of these gifts and how we're to use them, right? Not for ourselves, but for the building up the body. When it all comes down to it, the gifts here and, and how we act in this life here, even on our best spiritual day, we're going to be able to look back one day and say, when we're fully attained, when we, we, we are fully uh, uh, glorified, fully and perfectly conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, what has been declared over us and, uh, by God in Christ that we are we are we are perfect becomes our practice as well in heaven. That's called glorification. That's the final stage of our sanctification. No more sin. Maturity, full maturity, we're going to look back and say, boy, what a child I was. What a child I was. Paul says, and the thing, and what he's implying here through this passage is a thing that will be the full beauty is this perfect love. Perfect love. Paul says, give me in other words, love. The love that's described here. The love that's the highest form of knowing that we can reach here in this world or the world to come. And then he, and then he says this in 1 Corinthians 13. He gives another picture. It's a picture of a mirror. A picture of a mirror. And verse 12, now we see through a glass darkly. So he's talking about in our present life, right? In contrast to the life to come. He says, now we can see some shadows. Now we see that we can see some things, but we can't see a perfect picture yet. 
But he says, but then, in eternity, face to face. Now, I know some things. I know in part. Then shall I know, even as also I am known. So, he, he gives this picture of a mirror. And mirrors were made in Corinth, but the point Paul's making uh, would be familiar to many writers, who, uh, many people who lived in that ancient world. When you look in a mirror, by the way, everything, uh, even in our good mirrors today, everything though is backwards, isn't it? It's backwards. Like you, uh, as clear as the image might be, it's still not a perfect image. You can't, and then some mirrors, you can't always make out what it is you're looking at. And Paul's saying, that's what the present time is kind of like. You can see something of God's plan. We have God's Word here that's revealed, but we don't know everything. Deuteronomy 29.29 tells us there are some secret things of God that He's chosen not to reveal to us. But in the world to come, it will all be plain. Now what's interesting here is that the mirrors in the ancient world were made of brass. And Corinth was famous for its brass. And the famous Corinthian brass workers uh, would, would make these mirrors and, uh, and, and they, they would etch out a mirror. They would hammer it out as smooth as they can. And when someone would order a mirror, the artist many times would naturally etch the, 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 the face of one of their gods in the mirror as well, like an outline of the face of one of the gods. Example, Poseidon, for example. And when you rose up in the morning and looked in the mirror, guess what you saw? You would have the pleasure of seeing your face with the face of the gods, Right? For those who worship those gods, and certainly that would be a nice touch. And but those mirrors would soon tarnish, right, under oxidation. And uh, and uh, obviously it was a sketch of one of their their false gods. It wasn't real, and they didn't talk to him or her. And there will be a day when we step across heaven's threshold and we gaze, and it's not a mirror anymore, and we look like Christ. And the mirror of the old life, the mirror of even the good life that was still incomplete will fall out of our hand as we see the full beauty of Jesus Christ reflected in us. There will be a glorious future, Paul says. That day I shall know fully as I am fully known. And so all these brag bragging prideful claims of the knowledge that I have through this gift of knowledge, Paul says. That doesn't compare to love. God's knowledge of me right now is very complete, isn't it? Paul says my knowledge of Him will also be full. Paul's making the illustration that our spiritual life here is like a small child in comparison to the full final maturity we have in heaven. And love is the measure because God is progressing everything to that purpose of, 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 of a world of, of, of true and genuine, pure love. We can think of God's love like a river. And here we're able to step into some of the streams of it, aren't we? We're able to drink in the love of God here through His Word. Paul tells his, the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 3, 14-21, he says, I pray that your eyes be open, your, your hearts be uh, uh, filled with the love of God that is full of the breadth and the height and the length and the depth of God's love and to know God and to have Him fill you. But that's not going to be complete in us, is it? 
We're to work at it by God's grace, by faith. It's not going to be complete till we're with the Lord. And God's river here of love crosses the border, doesn't it? Into the new world. It doesn't end in this world. It crosses the border into the world. And this world of, 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 of our love has, has some tainting in it. You might not want to always drink that water. Right? We have selfishness mixed in with it. But in that world, there's not going to be any pride. There's not going to be jostling for positions. There's not going to be contention among God's people. And Paul is saying, with those future eyes of faith, step into that river now. And work it out. Work out your salvation among your church. There's not going to be a judging motives. There's not going to be the things that he says here in verses 4-7 through of impatience, unkindness, envy, pride, puffing up, rudeness, wanting my own way, being suspicious of people. Not easily provoked. Thinks no evil. Doesn't rejoice when that person hits the ground, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's the river. We're going to taste in heaven. Paul says, drink from that water now. And see it fleshed out among your problems here. Thirdly and finally, we see that love is the measure because heaven will be a world of love. Look what he says in verse 13. This is kind of what we were saying all along. But he says, and now abides faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. He says, right now we are operating by faith. We have to have our eyes set on a certain hope. Faith. What God has said is true, a hope of what God has said is true that we will that we are that of the goal that we are working toward, looking for by God's power and love. Those three cardinal virtues here of the Christian faith. But He says the greatest of these is love, is charity. Let me say, but without faith, it's impossible to please God. Remember Hebrews eleven, or we're supposed to set our eyes on hope. That's pretty prominent throughout 1 Peter and Romans chapter 8. How do these... Why are these not as important as love? I want you to think about it like this. One day, faith will vanish and shimmer away into sight. We won't have to live by faith the same way we did on this earth. Seeing Him who is invisible. Right? Hope it's going to be emptied into delight. Our hope will be realized. Love? Love's going to go on. Old hymn says, Faith will vanish into sight. Hope be emptied in delight. Love in heaven will shine more bright. 200 years ago, um, God used a man through his preaching who kindled the fires of revival here in New England with the Great Awakening um, here, uh, Jonathan Edwards. And then Whitfield came along and he just threw gasoline on those flames here as he spread it. 
Whitfield, uh, Edwards labored in Northampton, <coughs> Massachusetts, right on the border, Enfield, right on the border of uh, Connecticut, uh, Massachusetts, <coughs> and Whitfield went everywhere. Jonathan Edwards asked this question. What makes the church like heaven? And he pondered that and pondered that and pondered that. And his answer, his conclusion was, it's love. It's love. He said, heaven is a society of love. That is the distinguishing mark of heaven. All that the church is to be. And verses 1 through 3 tells us that without love, it's pointless. So that means with love, it's full of God's goal, God's point. And it's to be, what we do is to be accomplished in love. And he wrote a sermon called Heaven, a World of Love, and, and then Charity and Its Fruits. Um, and they're kind of hard to read. But what he says is the evidence that heaven, by God's grace, has invaded this world by the church of Jesus Christ is first of all that the Spirit's been poured out on us. And then the truth that the Spirit has poured out of us, poured out on us in Romans 5, is that He has shed abroad God's love. And that love is not to be sitting in a bank account, but it's to be invested and used. And the proof that God's Spirit is among us is love. It's love. It's Christian love. And so what Paul is saying in this passage here, why the greatest, the heaviest, the weightiest of these things is charity, is love, and verses 1-3, through three, though I do all these things, but how to have love, and then verses 4-7, through seven, this is what love is, and now verses 8-13, through 13, we live in a shadow, but one day we'll be in the light of the sun. What Paul is saying is this, think future Practice future now. Think future of what heaven will be like. Selfless, service, right? Giving honor to one another. Rejoicing in how God has made each other different, distinct. Using what God has given you. And Paul says, do that now. Do that now. Resist the temptation of factions. 1 Corinthians 1-3. through The fights. To social divisions at the Lord's table. Chapter 11. To boasting over spiritual gifts or comparing yourself to other people. Boy, we do that, don't we? Those are temporary helps to build up the church in this age. And learn to use them. But learn to use them for the right purpose. That's what 13 is about. 14 is about the right purpose. 13 is about um, why that's so important. Because one day, one day, when Jesus ascended this earth, He left it on a high note, right? He says, I'm going to come back. I am king. All authority is given unto me. 
Go and make disciples, I'll be with you. He left it on that note, right? But that wasn't the end note. One day, he's going to come down and he's going to play that last note. The resolution will be reached. The Son Himself will come down and He will complete the music. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. So one through three, without love, pack up and go home. Right? It's pointless. Four through seven, this is what it looks like in a broken world. And then eight through thirteen, this is why it's so weighty, so important because it's going to continue throughout eternity. And so the text here is really asking us, do we get it? Do we get it? And are we going to obey it? That's what this passage is saying to us. Do we really get it? And are we going to obey it? Is that what we're going to put supreme? Let's pray.